You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I am Nicole, one of your moderators and a member of the committee staff. You can find more about the Standing Committee online or join our listserv at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. And I'm Yvette. And I'm Elisa. We're your co-moderators. The ABA Standing Committee is comprised of seasoned national security lawyers. The committee has spent the past 55 years keeping lawyers and the public informed about the hottest topics in national security law today. Any legal podcast has disclaimers, and ours is no exception. Your other moderators today are national security attorneys here moderating as individuals and not on behalf of their agencies or firms. The committee presents non-biased information from a variety of reliable sources. Reliable sources of knowledge are the key to true intellectual growth. But if you like getting your news from dubious social network posts of unknown origins that make you feel inexplicably angry, we cannot be helpful. If you would rather grow and learn facts from our amazing guests and get real information through links to the Black Letter Law and articles on today's topic, which you can find at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity and in the notes to this podcast. If you like facts, sit tight. We got you. Today, we're going to depart from our normal series to welcome a journalist who has covered terrorism and national security issues with an excellence and a depth that is unmatched over a decade for National Public Radio. Dina Temple Raston has been the voice of reason, and I'm sure you know this voice when you hear it. She's also been the voice of facts and more. We've watched her dig deeper into the whys more than anyone else. We've also watched her transformation as a radio journalist over the last decade, and we're looking forward to hearing her familiar voice and coverage because she has tremendous insight on a lot of things that we care about touching on national security. Really glad to have you. Thanks for having me. So, Dina, you have taken your desire to understand terrorism and violent extremism to a whole new level, or depth, with two of the books that you've written, A Death in Texas and The Jihad Next Door, and many more. You have a new podcast out on Audible called What Were You Thinking? And it's available today on Apple, and I have it on my Android. I started listening to it. I think it's amazing. Thank you. So can you tell us uh, what got you started on this? Well, to be frank, first of all, thank you for inviting me. This is great. And and to be frank, for a long time, for 10 years as National Public Radio's um, counterterrorism correspondent, I was talking to young kids who were radicalized or their parents. And their moms kept saying to me, you know, we're not radical Muslims. This is not the religion we practice in our home. How come my kids are doing this? And for 10 years, I pretty much had to shrug and say, well, you know, I I don't know. It's adolescence. You know, we've all heard about the prefrontal cortex and their executive decision making. We've heard about hormones. But that was just not a really good answer, a very unsatisfying answer. So what I ended up doing is trying to decide or or try to research something that would allow me to give them a better answer. And there has been an amazing amount of new brain research, specifically on the adolescent brain in the last five years or so. MRIs used to be incredibly expensive. So the only kids that they would put into MRIs would be sick kids. They sort of extrapolated from what they knew about sick kids and adults to try to decide what a healthy, developing adolescent brain was. Well, then the MRI, the price drops through the floor and they start putting healthy kids into MRIs. And what they find is that what they thought was developing, the way they thought it was developing, is actually very different than what they understood. 
And so this is what I started to research for this podcast. I started looking at kids who had made monumentally bad decisions, joining ISIS, deciding to start an Amazon.com for the dark web, um, suicide contagion, gaming addiction, school shooting. And I looked at those decisions, found kids that you would purposely fall in love with. So they sound like your kid. They sound like a kid you know. And then you hear them make this turn in their decision-making process. And then I focus in on a particular part of the brain in each episode, talk to neuroscientists and psychologists, and explain how it is that the decision-making process, just because of the developing brain, may be predisposed to these ill-advised decisions. And then the idea is, at the end of all of this, you have the feeling that you can actually affect adolescence. Instead of having it sweep over you as, as something that you just need to get your kids through, it's actually something that you can control and that they can control. And if they understand how their brain is developing, what we found in talking to the kids for this podcast is that it gives them tremendous relief because they're back in control. It's not just, oh, my hormones are raging. Instead, it's, hmm, I want to join ISIS or save the mountain gorillas or become a vegan. Maybe it has something to do with my insula, which is making me more emotional and making me make poor decisions. And if I understand that, maybe I'll take a beat and make a better decision. That's the idea behind the podcast. Wow, that's really something. But I, I think what's interesting, um, I've, I've listened to you talk about this just a little bit in other contexts. You've identified and you've divided this series into categories of violence as well as parts of the brain. Can you talk a little bit about those parts of the brain and what you have learned in terms of how they are influencing these bad decisions right. to the extent that they are? Right. I mean, I don't want to be judgmental about the decisions, but I think that most parents would agree joining ISIS is a pretty bad decision. And most people would agree that if you decide to set up an Amazon.com for the dark code, that probably isn't a really great decision. Or if you contemplate suicide and actually have friends who are committing suicide, that that kind of contemplation, if you actually go through with it, is a terrible decision. So what we did is I focused on things that, for this particular first season, I focused on things I'd always wondered about. So clearly ISIS was a layup for me because I'd been doing this for so long. Also, we had a really interesting case, this guy named Abdullahi Yusuf, who was in Minnesota in 2014. He was stopped from boarding a plane to go to ISIS. And from the beginning, as soon as this guy was stopped by the FBI, all I could hear was how he was different. There was something different about this kid. He was more thoughtful, maybe a little bit too naive, but clearly not sort of a militant. And, and this started them thinking about that. So in his case, the part of the brain that we really focus on is the insula, which, as I said, is this sort of emotional center that neuroscientists believe, now this is all early stuff, it's possible it'll all get turned around, but neuroscientists believe that the insula during the ages of like 13, well we call adolescence 13 to 24, and the insula basically from 13 to like 20 is on like hyper a setting. It's, it's incredibly sensitive. So if the insula is incredibly sensitive and you are sort of faced with, for example, a bunch of people telling you no one is helping the Syrian people, no one is helping these women and children who are being killed. And remember, in Abdullahi's case, it was before the beheadings, before the journalists were, were uh, beheaded, before there was the sex slaves, and before we fully understood what ISIS was about. And he wasn't going for ideology. It's very clear if you listen to the episode. He was going because he thought it was his duty as a man 
to help these Muslims. And if you think about what was going on at that time in this country, there was a lot of division about Syria. Uh, we knew, I think most people thought Assad was a bad guy. How to deal with that bad guy was kind of mixed. There were hundreds of rebel groups at the time, many of which we didn't know if they were al-Qaeda related or not. Uh, and so, you know, he's a 17-year-old kid from Minneapolis and his friends are disappearing and going and he thinks, you know, if I want to be a man, I need to do this too. So his insula may well have informed that decision. Now, I didn't put him into an MRI machine, so we don't know. But his attitude certainly changed as he was maturing. He was in jail, learning more about his brain, learning more about critical thinking. And the actual rehab that he went through was really a rehab in teaching him how to think critically. He had never asked, what's jihad? He had never asked, what's ISIS? He just sort of thought, okay, they're saying I can go help women and children. If I'm a man, I'm going to do that, so I'll go. Uh, another example would be, um, so we do an episode on school shooters. And there are researchers down at Duke who are finding that when you are bullied or have trauma in your adolescence, it actually looks like it may reset your amygdala. Now, the amygdala is where your fear uh, and flight response is. It can make you more violent. There's actually a, a, quite a famous case, it's a little bit controversial, about Charles Whitman, the guy who was in the tower at the uh, University of Texas at Austin, uh, arguably the first school shooting when he opened fire on the people down below. Well, he had written uh, journals in which he had said something weird. He was, by the way, uh, 24 or 25 when that happened. And he had written journals that said, something weird is happening to me. I can feel my brain changing. I feel something has overtaken me and making me a different person. So he actually put in his journals, after I die, please open up my skull and take a look at my brain. So they do. And what they find is a tumor on his amygdala. So did that affect him? There were lots of things that Charles Whitman did. He had gone through many different things. But if you talk to people at Duke who are experts in the amygdala, they believe that there's a connection there. They've also found that kids who are bullied when they are younger can have a sort of more violent amygdala response or more of a fear and threat amygdala response up to four years later. Now, one of the reasons why I did this episode on school shooting is because I'd always heard that bullying and school shooting were linked. Now, once you dig into it, you realize that this is one of these um, sort of shorthand media things that we hear. And in fact, bullying and school shooting are not linked. Typically, there's sort of a matrix of things that are involved. There's a man named uh, Peter Langford who studies school shootings. And he has basically found that there's always, no matter where you are or what country, every time there's a school shooting, there are three main things that are involved. The first is some sort of mental health issue in the family, not necessarily with the child, but with the family. The second is some sort of feeling of physical deformity or insecurity. So, for example, in our episode, we actually talked to a young man who pleaded guilty to wanting to shoot up a school, and he is obese. And then the third element that is always there is some sort of social stressor. Now, that social stressor, say we look at the Nick Cruz case, which I've been looking at in response to this podcast. Nick Cruz's mother died. Nick Cruz was expelled from school. Nick Cruz had problems with police. Dr. Langford has found, in fact, those three stressors in particular appear 
in all the shooters that he's looked at. But what's interesting is Nick Cruz had three of them, not just one. So the idea behind that matrix for me, the reason why I think it's really important and why I've been trying to sort of um, publicize it, is what, what difference could there have been with Nick Cruz if you had realized as a public that those three things are incredibly key to putting someone on the path to violence? Then it wouldn't have been Nick Cruz is kind of a weird kid, and it wouldn't have been Nick Cruz, you know, threatened his mother. Instead, it's these three things that we know lead kids to this kind of path of violence. So that was sort of the idea behind it. And, I mean, those are just two examples. We have six episodes, but it gives you an idea that at least if you have a little bit of an understanding of what's going on with your developing brain, it suddenly gives both adolescents and parents an incredible sense of being more in control. So you don't say, hey, you're all grow this, or hey, it's hormones. But in fact, you sit down with your child and say, so, do you know anything about the amygdala? Let's look it up together. Let's look and see how this might be affecting the way you're reacting to things. Wow, that's really pretty incredible. And I think we've reached a point right now where most violent crime is committed by young men between certain ages. Um, And this sounds hopeful. It sounds like maybe there's something that we can get from considering this more deeply that might present us with a a better path forward than what we have right now. To your point, there's an episode on suicide contagion. So let me tell a story and I'm going to leave, I'm going to leave names out of this story. So we focused on a part of the adolescent brain called the ventral striatum when we looked at this episode. The ventral striatum is sort of a backup decision-making component of the brain. So We all know about executive function, prefrontal cortex, during adolescence, that's wiring up, okay? And it it actually is not getting bigger. Your prefrontal cortex, according to the people that I've spoken with, is full-size by the time you're eight. So what is actually going on during adolescence is your prefrontal cortex is becoming more efficient. So it is actually, during adolescence, pairing back connections that you don't necessarily need. So for example... The Teletubby song, which I couldn't sing for you in a million years, but you memorize it when you're little. You don't need it as you get older. So there's no reason to have that connection to your prefrontal cortex unless you're very attached to the Teletubbies. So these are the kinds of things, the pruning back, <laughs> these are the sort of, but this, and, and something more um, specific, reaching for your mother's hand when you cross the street. So you need that until a certain age, and then you don't. Uh, suckling you need when you're very little you don't we would hope need it as you get older (laughs) so these are things that all get pruned back in the brain and what ends up happening is at the end of this process it's called myelination at the end of this whole process what you end up having is a more efficient brain 3,000 times faster at making decisions so um, what I've likened it to, and some neuroscientists don't really like this, but it works for me because I'm in radio, is that <laughs> as you're tuning in the radio, right, you're getting all this static, and you can't quite hear what's going on. So you keep tuning, and then you get right to you know, the perfect tone of NPR coming out. That is what adolescence is like. You're tuning in. You need to tune in. And what the brain is doing is helping with that tuning process. And when that process goes awry, this is getting to your point about um, violence and young people, and young men in particular. They believe that some of the the violence that we're seeing, say, for example, in Aurora with the Colorado theater shooting, he had seemed mostly fine until that moment or until shortly before that time. 
in that case, did something happen with the wiring process where, where it frayed in a sense, like the insulation came off the wire and, and he made bad decisions? And they're starting to believe that if you know you have a propensity to this or could have a propensity to this, that there are certain things that you can do in adolescence to get people over that hump. So Dr. Langford said about shooters, which is fascinating, is that when he came in and stepped in and talked to them in time before they did anything, these people who got through this phase would go on to become completely happy, normal adults. They just needed to get through this phase. So this gets to your, to your whole point, that when we talked to somebody for the suicide contagion episode, we found out as we were talking to this particular person that, in fact, she had attempted suicide. And we didn't know that when we started talking to her but she sort of revealed this. And so I turned off the tape recorder and I talked to her about the ventral striatum and how it's a second rate decision maker. It worst cases everything they believe. And it basically fades as you get older so your prefrontal cortex is wired up. So your ventral striatum is saying, I'm a dork, uh, everyone hates me, I'm really stupid, I didn't get the part in the play so I'm a loser. And that's why they believe one of the reasons why your kid is so, your adolescent is so morose. Well, that ventral striatum is also saying, you're right, you know, there's no reason to live. Just go ahead. And that ventral striatum in places like Colorado Springs, where dozens of kids have had this suicide contagion, dozens of kids, over the last four or five years, it was their ventral striatum saying, well, you know, Holly was actually much happier than I was. She had a much better life, and she killed herself. Why am I here? So we explained this all to this young woman, and she turned to me and she said, oh my God, you mean I'm not crazy? And I said, no. And she said, you mean everyone is going through this? And I said, yes, they just don't, frankly, I didn't have the vocabulary to explain it six months ago, but yes, they just don't have the vocabulary to explain it. And then she turned to me and said, what a relief. And it was the reason why I've done this podcast is exactly that. I still, I actually still get goosebumps when I think I have goosebumps. Because <laughs> it was, I just felt like I was helping. Yeah. Right, well, you've been such an important reporter, regardless of the medium, for those of, those of our listeners who are interested in terrorism and trying to understand why it is that we've had terrorism mm -hmm. throughout history, and then we seem to have had an explosion of terrorism self-radicalization and all sorts of nonsense for basically what's been the last 20 years at this point, you know, wondering where it has come from. But you started out, if your bio that I read is correct, you started out maybe studying Chinese correct. and going in a different direction. And you've, you've got, I believe, a graduate degree from Columbia, you know, the preeminent journalism school in the nation. How in the heck did you decide this is what you were interested in so much that you were willing to spend all that time in Minneapolis, run these things down, and try to understand it on a le level that disregarded the fear of these kids and, and tried to understand them? What led you to that? Well, I, start, I, I, I think it began in terms of this. So I was a sinologist for, for years, and then I became a White House correspondent for Bloomberg, and then I went and started writing a one of the books that I wrote was called The Jihad Next Door, which was about the Lackawanna Six. And the four books I've written all sort of look at race in America, but in different, or race, but in different ways. So the first book, A Death in Texas, was supposed to be a snapshot of where we are on race in America 
and just at the dawn of the 21st century. And then the second book was about whether black-on-black racism is different than white-on-black racism. So I went to Rwanda, and I speak French. I was born in Belgium. So I decided that I wanted to you know, sort of see if the vocabulary was the same, if it's Hutu versus Tutsi. Turns out the vocabulary is exactly the same, which was quite interesting to me. And I covered a, a trial that was going on in the International uh, Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, ICTR, which was the first journalists who were put on trial for their work, for their journalist work, since Der Sturmer and uh, the Nazis. So I thought that was a pretty interesting thing. So that was my second book. My third book looked at civil liberties post-9-11, and then the fourth book looked at what's it like to be Muslim in America post-9-11. So the books look very disparate, but in fact, they're all of a theme. And in doing that Lackawanna book, it was really clear, and, and I feel really strongly about this, that I think radicalization in America is very different than radicalization, say, in France or Belgium. Radicalization in America, we, you know, sort of, in the business, we call them Pepsi-Cola jihadists very often. So these are people who are more American. Jihobbyists. I've heard jihadists too. I just, you know, I'm a Pepsi drinker, so it's a diet Pepsi-Cola uh, sort of jihadist. And, they're armed, and they've also been known as armchair jihadists, right? And so the Lackawanna Six, while they went to go and join al-Qaeda before 9-11, nearly all of them faked injuries to come back because, in fact, they were too American. They didn't, they didn't really subscribe to that because there is opportunity here and less discrimination than, say, there would be in France or Belgium if you're Muslim. They're very open about their anti-Islamic bias in both France and Belgium to the point that... Um, it's not that surprising the number of people who have decided to go to ISIS. There, there are problems with their prison system and radicalization within their prison system. So one of the numbers, and this gets more to my reporting for NPR than, than the podcast, but one of the really interesting numbers is that Muslims make up 14%, one percent of the population in France, but they make up 70 70% of the population in French prisons. So a lot of radicalization happens there. So many people who ended up being part of the uh, November 13th attacks in Paris were people who were um, in the prison system awaiting trial for petty crimes like selling cigarettes or you know marijuana or whatever it is. And they're in a maison d'arrêt, which is basically where you stay while you wait for trial. It takes so long for them to go to trial that they basically say, okay, time served. And the first thing they would do is try to get a flight to ISIS. Most of the people from the November 13th attacks uh, fall into that category. And we, we actually went to, we were in Brussels uh, shortly after the Brussels attacks. And we found out that there are sort of two immigrant communities in Brussels that are fascinating to compare because they came around the same time. One is the Turks and the other is the Moroccans. Now, nearly everyone who was involved in the November 13th attacks were Moroccan. And... Everyone involved in, I think this is right, everyone involved in the Brussels attacks were also Moroccan. And the brothers, uh, Karachi brothers, who were involved in the Charlie Hebdo attacks were also of Moroccan descent. Uh, most of them were citizens, but they were of Moroccan descent. The Turks and the Moroccans came around the same time in the 1970s. And the Turks decided to set up small business administrations, chambers of commerce, special education, basically safety nets for the community. The Moroccans said, we'll just study. We already speak French, so we have a huge advantage. So we'll study, we'll get advanced degrees, and we'll assimilate. So what ended up happening is that uh, there have been literally no Turks who have left 
for ISIS out of Belgium. Literally not one. Wow. And they've been nearly, largely Moroccan or North African. Mm-hmm. Okay. But what's interesting about that is that we went into a neighborhood where actually one of the bomb makers lived for the Belgium attacks. So we would stop young Turks and ask them about their optimism. And then we would stop young Moroccans and ask them how they felt about their prospects were. And the Turks, to a man, would say, you know, if I really wanted to start a business, I could probably do it. You know, I would go and ask, what's his name's father, if I could set up a small market. And, you know, I feel pretty optimistic about things. When we talked to the Moroccans, they would say, my brother has an MBA, and he went to go and get a job. And the white boss said to him, I know you have an MBA, but I am hiring this white Belgian, even though he only has a bachelor's degree. So there are people sweeping streets in Belgium who have MBAs because they're Moroccan. So they have a deep feeling that they are being discriminated against, and they're right, and that they have no opportunities, and to a large extent, they're right. So when someone says to them, come to Syria, there's opportunity here. Sure, and they even have a a legal system, which makes it hard for certain immigrants to work, actually to be employed, even in certain professions, which perpetuates that. So, but let me let me go back for just a second because um, I can't let you off the hook. I'm sorry. I know that you love interviewing people and getting information, but for God's sakes, you're from Northern California. And what I does that mean? You say, well, I I have heard you oh, mention that there is some hope in terms of the adolescent mind, impulsivity, and mindfulness. Mm-hmm. Oh, I know. And I associate mindfulness with things like places at Big Sur and. Could this possibly be? Did your research lead you to any hopefulness about? Well, what's so interesting that? is that, and I don't want to ruin the first season, but the last thing that I en- I thought I would end up at, given my Northern California roots, was mindfulness. Because when I was growing up and when I was in high school, everybody was doing est. You know, we were a European family, so we didn't do it, but everybody around us was doing est. And that would be the Earhart Standard Training, which was sort of famous for price gouging and, and humiliating well, people. Among other things, but it was also famous for making northern, mellow Northern California kids even more mellow, if that was possible. So <laughs> we didn't, so, you know, that wasn't what my family did. But so I, I probably leaned against the idea of mindfulness for quite some time, but it, be, it kept coming up again and again that you could affect change by just getting adolescents to like stop a beat, to wait a beat before they made a decision. And mindfulness is a lot about that. And the last thing I expected was to be sort of going into a New York high school, which is what we do, and talk to a teacher there who is teaching these kids who have a pretty tough upbringing and a pretty tough family life how to be mindful. And talking to the kids and actually having them tell us how it changed their lives and basically what this mindfulness is doing. There's an expert in this named Daniel Siegel, who's out of UCLA. He's a neuroscientist. Basically what mindfulness ends up doing, besides calming you down a little bit, is making you wait a beat. It's very clear that adolescents have all the capability they need to make a good adult decision. But they maybe don't take a beat to get to that decision. And so what we sort of say in this last uh, episode is that maybe one of these solutions is not just understanding your developing brain and why you might be reacting to something in a certain way. But if you feel you may be a little out of control, 
maybe you can just calm yourself down and make the best decision possible. And that's not where I expected us to go in the first uh, season, despite my Northern California roots, but it is where we kept ending up. All right, well, so this has to have made you think about yourself as a, as a younger person. What, did you get any insights? What were your takeaways? Did it cause you to do any self-reflection? I, I wasn't an intensely rebellious kid, so no, I think, I think that what happened... So, you know, I started working quite early, I was into sports, I did sailing, so there were lots of things to channel my energies, so I never got very rebellious. So in that respect, I don't know that it said very much about me. Well, I'll be very interested to see how our understanding of this brain that we have uh, develops over the next 15 years and what the implications are to prevent terrorism and improve national security. So speaking of that, so we've gone kind of really personal and now we should expand out more broadly. What should policymakers be doing with this information? How can you know we be changing the structure of what we're doing in society in order to support the adolescent brains, not let people's lives be derailed because of silly mistakes that they made in their youth. What do you think policymakers should take away from the podcast? Well, to bring it back to terrorism for a moment, I think Minneapolis is trying to do some very interesting things and at least testing some sort of jihadi rehab, right, uh, and try to teach kids to think more critically. This is one of the things they did with Abdullahi Yusuf. But from a policy-making point of view, one of the things that I think we're going to be looking at in the second season has to do with culpability. And we've sort of nibbled at the edges of this in, in Supreme Court, right, where they're beginning to look at kids who are younger or, or 18 and the decisions they made, whether or not they should be put in solitary confinement, what, what their prison sentences should be. We're not there yet, but there is a nibbling at the edges of this based on the what little we are learning about the developing brain. And to get back to your point, I don't think it's going to be 15 years. I think it's going to be much faster than that. I think that we're learning in leaps and bounds. And, you know, countering violent extremism is one of the many programs, and this is sort of what Abdullahi Yusuf was going through in Minneapolis. Countering violent extremism. Nobody's quite sure how to make that work yet, but the essence of countering violent extremism is actually teaching people to question and to think more critically and to maybe not accept what ISIS tells you or Al-Qaeda tells you at face value. And the CVE programs that seem to be sort of having the most benefit are the ones who are looking there. They're not trying to reprogram someone's ideology. That doesn't work. You know, I just finished reviewing a book called Healing from Hate by Michael Kimmel. And I did the review in the Washington Post a couple of weeks ago. And he believes that a lot of the radicalization that we're seeing, whether it's white supremacy or violent extremism or radical Islam, it all has to do with gender that if you actually address it on a gender level, I mean, there are women who have this happen, but as a general matter, it's men. Why is it always men? Well, he says in his book and in his research that what he finds is that it is all about trying to be a man that leads them to this. And if you find other ways to address their feelings of inadequacy in being a man, a strong man, that is much easier to address than trying to address a white supremacist ideology or a radical Islamic ideology. Address 
the person address this feeling that I've lost my job? I mean, if you look across the spectrum of the people who do this, there are life issues that they're dealing with, much more than ideological issues. And I've always thought that it's easier to fight radicalization in the U.S., as we were talking about earlier, because the ideology isn't what's motivating people. Or it is, but it's skin deep. And it's not deep as it is, say, for example, in France and Belgium, where they've been nursing these resentments for years. Here is sort of an interesting idea for younger people. And one other point that sort of brought me to this is that, for the most part, the people who were deciding to join Al-Qaeda were in their mid to late 20s, maybe early 30s. The kids who are leaving the United States to try and join ISIS, at least up until recently, in the last year or so, are 14, 15, 16, 17 years old. These are not ideological decisions. These are adolescent decisions, and that's how they need to be addressed. So, I think that we have reached the end of our time together. Oh, okay. Um, That was fast. Fascinating. (laughs) Yeah, it really really is. I mean, Dina, honestly, uh, we're so glad that you're still with NPR. You are amazing. They're very lucky to have you. And I personally have listened to you for the last 10 years. You've really been a standout in coverage of this area. You've really exceeded so many of your peers, and and we hope that you'll continue to do that. Um, The podcast is called What Were You Thinking? You can find it on Audible an Amazon.com audiobook platform, which I also uh, would recommend you get. It's fantastic. And starting today, the new episode will go up every week on Apple. You can find it as a podcast on Apple, and I'm sure on some other listening platforms. This has been a real honor of all the journalists out there covering national security. Uh, I feel like we've been graced with by far one of the best. I wish you luck. Um, and we and hope you'll come back. We'll come back and see us. Season two. Yeah, okay. uh, we'll make sure that we hyperlink Dina's podcast in the notes to our podcast. And uh, I just want to say, Dina, I am the mom of a seven-year-old um, who is fast approaching adolescence. Too fast. Uh, and I look forward to hearing this. And I think it will give me a lot of wisdom and peace uh, and also help explain a lot of the things to him that he may see in the world. So I'm glad you did this project. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening to the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Tune in again in a week for our next episode. So right now, if you're out there thinking about how much you want to practice law in a skiff where you have no access to the device you're using to listen to us right now, and you're smart enough to disable any and all location services on your smartphone until you're really ready to use them, and you want to have an impact on national security, perhaps in the counterterrorism setting. And, of course, you'll be listening to somebody like Dina along the way because you'll get a lot more insight. And you don't mind working without access to your addictive smartphone because you're holed up in a skiff. Then join us again next time for National Security Law Today, brought to you by the American Bar Association's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. And we hope to see you at our next event. Physically, we mean. Because listening to a podcast is informative, but social networking isn't really networking. Show up at one of our breakfasts or lunches or conferences. Check us out at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity or follow us on Twitter at ABA NatSec. Check out our books, too. If you're trying to grow a practice in national security law, take a look at our website and you can find a number of useful resources. And of course, if you really want to learn a lot, continue to listen to Dina. From all of us here, thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. 
Find more at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity and listen to the whole series of What Were You Thinking at Audible.com slash Adolescent Brain.